Hey everyone, welcome back to Lee2B. In today's episode, we're doubling down on Lee2B power as I'm joined by a fellow Lee in the B2B world, the phenomenal Lee Densmer, a global content marketing expert and owner of Globia, a content marketing consultancy that offers content strategy, editorial planning, and content development. With 23 years immersed in translation and interpretation, Lee brings a unique global perspective helping businesses master the art of cross-culture communication. At Globia, she orchestrates the symphony of content strategy and editorial finesse. Get ready for a double dose of insights and wit, because when two Lees collide, magic happens. On this episode of Lee to B. Hallelujah. Hey, Lee. Thank you for that great introduction. I love it. Of course. It. I'm yes. Gonna you, I'm going to have you email that to me and we can use I will, it. I will. And you know, like, I, I was thinking, like, what should I do with with the double Lee thing, I'm like, should I do double the, the flavor, double the fun? Like, but I'm thinking, you know, double the Lee. I, and I figured it out. You know what, Lee? There's four of us. There's four Lee marketers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one is, has a similar last name to mine, but we have a little Lee posse. We could have a Lee times four. I Check. saw that. I thought you tagged yourself. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's, that's some other guy. That's a guy. Yeah. It's me and four and three men. So, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. I'm probably the oldest. So I would like to be the OG. Okay. Well, I don't know if you can be the OG. When did people start calling you Lee? Oh, that's a really good point. I have a, le- a different legal name in the first grade. Okay. No, so it's still probably to... OG then. But... Thank you. I don't know if I want to tell everybody how old I am, but I'm old. <laughs> so, I mean, super excited to have uh, another Lee on. If any other Lees in B2B are listening, let's let's get to it. Contact me. Uh, but Lee, we actually were supposed to speak the other week. I got the rejection or decline from a job that was one month in the process, six plus calls and assignment. So I was like, you know what? I, 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 I bring authenticity every day. I'm like, I can't come to the mic in a, in a sour mood. So I'm like, let's just let's push it. And you were so nice about it. And, and yeah. Yeah. Cause it's happened to me. So have you recovered from that? Oh yeah. Honestly, it takes me like a day. Um, like really it's like, you know what, whatever. Uh, to me to me it's always like it's not necessarily i'm it's not necessarily like like i'm I'm pissed off it's more that you know i thought i was gonna get this everybody else made it seem like i was gonna get it too and then you know i just spent like one month of my time that i could have been just not doing that (laughs) like freaking ironing or cleaning your closets would have been a better I actually don't iron my clothes. Uh, millennials have killed iron ironing. I think <laughs> it's not a thing anymore. <laughs> I, I steam them occasionally when when I need to, but yeah, no, I don't. That's too much work for me. But yeah, like I said, I've been through it too. It's such a brutal job market right now. It's ultimately why I started my business. Like, you know, two hundred people apply for a job online. You're lucky to get an interview. You interview with the HR recruiter for for half an hour, and they tick the boxes. They're like, yep, yep, check, check. Then two more interviews and three, and then you do a little project or respond to a prompt or do a content plan in my case. You give them a free a- strategy and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah something, something eight hours of work. I, I have had to take an IQ test. I have had to take a personality test. And I failed the IQ test. They came back to me and said, your your uh, score didn't didn't meet our needs. Oh, yeah. What was it a government job? Was it for like what was this? <laughs> it was a top secret. No, I, I, it was, it was a SAS. It was a, it was an IT. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Was, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever taken an IQ test. I don't like in your life. I don't, yeah. I don't think so. No, but you don't need to because it's obvious you're over one forty. Well, so I, I, but again, like, is is IQ really like? 
like to me it's like you're taking a test and like any test you you'll get a score in it mm-hmm. and Again, maybe I, maybe there's a reason I haven't taken it, but I'm like, IQ, there's EQ, I don't need a number, I don't remember my SAT scores, like, why do I need to know my IQ score? Don't, no, it's, it's, it's irrelevant, ultimately, a terrible way to judge somebody's capabilities and ability to get along with other people and work hard and all the things, it is just a number, and I didn't hit their number. Or, or or hit the right numbers in the right section, but I won't take another IQ test. I have I have nothing to prove. I got through college. I got a good SAT score. Yeah, and like so I, I get it when the the interview and maybe even the assignment are like like fair stuff, really more like we just wanna make sure you you can say the stuff you're doing. You're not just saying buzzwords. I get it when it's stuff like that. But when like when it's immediate just like tests like that or just like actual free work, it's like what am I doing here? I know. I have I felt like sending an invoice. I put together a three month content plan for a company. That's normally like I would charge for that. That's that could yeah. be fifteen hours of work. And I didn't get the job. And I thought, how snarky would it be for me to send an invoice for that? I let it go. But would that have been snarky? Or... I mean, yes and no. But, like, I feel like you should have done that. Because uh, the three-month plan is, is that's a lot. Right. I, I might charge, you know, five, five six, ten thousand dollars $10,000 for that. Right? Anyway. And the so thing what... is, and then we'll get into it after the ramp. But, like, the thing yeah. is, is, like, especially in content marketing and in demand gen growth marketing, much of what you're doing is is submitting ideas and submitting ways to test things or different messaging. So yeah, I, I'm sure most companies out there, you know, there's there's not malicious intent behind it. Uh, you know, many companies there there might be too, but it's like whether they they're doing it intentionally or not, they are they are getting free work and then they're seeing what different ways and information they can think about things, and, and that's what it is. And that's what it is. So ultimately, and you and I've chatted about this. Um, I decided to open my own business because the the process just chewed me up. Like it was a self esteem hit. It was frustrating. It was a waste of time. And I decided to open my own business. I have a friend who inspired me. So I spent about three, like a binge, three full days writing out a business plan. I have a template. So. Three full days straight. Like I would get up at 4 a.m. I was really excited. The ideas just came in and I was on fire and I wrote out this business plan. And at the end of that process, I was like, I can do this. I have something to sell. I know who to sell it to. I think I know how to price it. Like I had everything I needed. And then my husband and I um, sat down at our kitchen table and over about three hours, we opened up the LLC. We bought the domain name. We bought the software I needed. We did the things and that took three hours. And then the next day I was like, we're doing this. And I had one client right out of the gate who had reached out to me before. So she was my first go-to is my, still my favorite and best client. She's the one who got me started and I just went for it. And it felt so natural for me to do it. Um, However, when you open up a business, you have to really quickly learn how to be a business person. Like I know my craft, I've been doing it forever, mm-hmm. but then I had to take myself to school to learn how to run a business, which is not for everyone. Yeah. Like but what I are some of the things, like what are some of the hurdles yeah. or, or was it like the admin stuff, the finance, or was mm-hmm. it other stuff? 
It's all of it. So I found it super fun, actually. But so it is the finance stuff. It is the tax, it's taxes, it's accounting, it's all the number stuff that is just brand new to me. I've had to outsource it. And I had to outsource it quickly before I screwed it up. Like, you know, where, how do you pay taxes? How do you pay yourself? How do you take money out of the business when you need to? So those things. Um, because I'm a marketer, I know how to market, but I didn't know how to market my services and to whom. So I really had to figure out LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my primary sales channel. Um, I've had to figure out what work I should do and what work I shouldn't do. So like many of us, I can do a hundred things, hundred things, mm-hmm. but I shouldn't do these things because they're, um, they take a lot of my time. They're too low level for me. I don't enjoy them. So I've had to figure out what not to do and double down on what I'm really good at and what I should be doing and figure out what to outsource. So at the start, I was doing it all. And pretty soon I was like, not this, not that. I need to outsource that. I'm outsourcing some writing. I'm outsourcing my research. I'm outsourcing my SEO. And then I can do the the higher level stuff and just manage that. So, and you learn really fast. Like once you're in, you figure it out really fast and you find the book or you find the club. I joined an entrepreneur club um, online, which has been awesome. You find the club, you find the mentor, you find the book, you find the course, and then you just you just figure out how to do those things. Was it just like a lot of like learning by doing like, oh, like I shouldn't have offered this price or you know what? This is boring to me. I don't want to do it. <laughs> is, is it just like yeah. learning by doing? Yes, but you really have to listen to your gut and to yourself. So you don't make those mistakes. Like I don't have the time. I only want to work for 10 more years. I don't have the time to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have three years to replace my income. I have one year. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think that's like the thing with a lot of people is like, Yes, there's the freelancing and, oh, being my own boss and all of the, like, you know, cliche stuff people say about it. But, right. I mean, it's also that super risky thing. And a lot of people have that question. Can I really create, recreate my salary or at least close to a salary? Right. Yeah. I also think a lot of people spending way too much money at the start. And I was, I was conservative. They're buying too much software. They're buying a one-on-one business coach for 400. You don't need a, you do not need an expensive business coach. Like mm-hmm. Some people do not. I haven't. So they spend too much money at the start. And then you can't put that genie back in the bottle. You're like, it costs $2,000 a month to run my business. And that's not sustainable. And yeah. I can tell you that it costs me about $250 a month to run my business. And that includes my cell phone bill. Yeah, nice. So that it just so, doesn't. You just doesn't need to cost that much to run your business. Right, right. Um. So as as someone who's kind of transitioned from working for others to running your own business, how have you figured out the sweet spot of I'm not charging too little for my services based on my expertise, but I also understand you know I'm a maybe one person or or a group i'm not like a typical agency or something like that how have you balanced that so i love this question because it's been really difficult to figure out pricing is really hard right out of the gate i think i underpriced myself and that's maybe a lack of confidence or awareness of the market or you're actually selling to people who don't have money which is a huge mistake like don't sell to people who don't have money Mm -hmm. duh Um, so I started low and I got a lot of feedback from peers about where I should be. And I need to be less than an agency because I'm not an agency. Right. I don't have, you know, I don't have a support crew around me. So it has taken me some time and I've socialized my pricing and 
some clients look at your pricing and go, you're cheap. And some look at it and go, God, I could never pay that. And it's hard. So trial and error, a lot of research, a lot of talking to other people. I have a handful of trusted peers who actually will look at my proposals and go, you're crazy charging that. It's too low or whatever. It's hard. Pricing is hard. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and like, like the last thing you want to do, Lee, is charge hourly. And there's mm-hmm. some there's some really good Jonathan Stark is somebody who's really clear on getting away from hourly pricing. His podcast is called Ditching Hourly. And Amen. Like the last thing you want to do is set up an hourly rate and just just trade dollars for for hours. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, so I I've been a time tracking person most of my career because you know i was in the agency life plus i've, I've done yeah. freelancing before time tracking is like the most annoying thing and it's just it's, it, it's also like you know when you're on a treadmill or or something mm-hmm. and like it's shoving the calories you're burning yeah. and it's like much lower than you want it to and it's just like oh, i've been running so much and i'm like what that that number it's just it's, it's like the same thing kind of yeah it's like it's like numerical t- torture yeah, I turn my time so I understand my productivity. Uh huh. And I keep a little spreadsheet so I understand my productivity. Have I underscoped the job? Like that took me twelve hours, and I bid for you know an eight-hour job, but I don't report my hours to my clients, and that allows you to sell based on value, right? Like I'm producing this X for you, and this is the price, and this is the value you get, but I'm not tracking, not even telling you, telling you how I make the sausage, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So let's get into Globy. Let's let's yeah, sure. let's talk about that a bit. So, twenty three years in the translation industry. What what did that look like? What was yeah. what were you doing? So I'll back up. So I am. I have degrees in Spanish, and I was born in South America. And I like travel is my top. If I if I have extra money to spend, I'm booking a trip. Right. So all my life, it's been travel and Spanish and language and culture and linguistics. And so. After grad school, I got into project management for a translation company, and that's how I got into the industry. So 20 plus years in the industry, and I've been a project manager and a client services manager, and um, then solution architecture, which is maybe a kind of work that people on this call have heard about, eventually into marketing. So the translation industry is all about um, taking business global. So, and that does have to do with translation. So how do you, how do you adapt your product and your content for the European market or the Asian market? So you can sell there. And so people Mm -hmm. in those countries want to buy your product. It's super interesting. And lately it's a lot about AI and translating with AI and um, a lot of technology involved. So it's technical and cultural and that, that mix is just incredibly interesting. See, here's, and you'll tell me this, where, where mm-hmm. I've seen problems with AI is, is kind of the historic problem with translation is when you, when you back translate it, mm-hmm. meaning, if, for, for, actually, you could probably define it better, but to me, my understanding is you have somebody translate it, and then you have another person translate what that person did, so it, it, yeah. it sounds the same and it matches up. So. Yeah, I feel like AI can't really do that the way a person can because it's it's not always just about replacing the word; it's placing right. the the connotation, the meaning, and it doesn't it doesn't fit. Yeah, it sounds like you understand it pretty well. So AI is well, 
the old form of AI in translation was a one for one, like pattern recognition and rules. Like here's the sentence, here's its here's its equivalent, and that's a very kind of mechanical process that doesn't give any room for like nuance or culture mm -hmm. or anything like that. So human, like always, has to get back in and put in put the humanity back in. But now AI and large language models like ChatGPT have so much bias baked in. So the the translations are a lot more fluent and a lot more like clear and human and, and but so much bias. I mean, there's hallucinations, but I want to talk about the bias. So large language models are trained on massive amounts of data. And all of our historical data is full of humanity's historical bias, like gender bias, cultural bias, yep. all the bias, racial bias. It just gets dragged over. And so you've got all this translated content that just is perpetuating stereotypes and bias. And we have to we have to find a way to fix that. And I think the translation industry is responsible for finding if we're going to use this technology, we have to find ways to fix that. It's irresponsible mm -hmm. to perpetuate that bias. And that's a human fix, but it's also a tools fix. So you can use tools to help fix translated content you know, um, amped up versions of like a search and replace that searches for the offensive term and plugs in the right one. But it's even interesting to think about language and different languages kind of have bias baked in. So like the Spanish language, there's gendered, gendered languages that have nouns and verbs actually have a gender like baked in. That's the easiest way to explain it. So when you're translating into a gendered language, you have to pick if the house if, is female or male. Or if the verb is female or male, and there's no binary gender choices. And so languages are actually evolving to fix this bias problem. So, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. It's super interesting, but it's a very big problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so mm -hmm. where where do people start there? Is it is it with AI? Is it with people? Is it both? what what's the proper way to go about it yeah good question so say you are a u.s business and you've got this data that shows that people in asia are buying your product you've got people from japan visiting your website you've got people from china interacting on your social whatever you've got a sense that you need to do business in asia and you think First thing we need to do is translate some of our content into Chinese or Japanese or Korean so that audience can read it. Because research shows that 75% of people would rather do business in their language. Like they're more likely to buy from you, even if they're bilingual, if it's in their language. Okay, so you decide to translate some content. It is ill-advised to just put all your blog posts and your ebook and your web page through a machine translation. Ill-advised. Because you're going to get the bias and you're going to get the hallucinations and you're going to get the mistranslations. So you have to go through a process of carefully picking your top pieces and translating them with a human and testing them to see how they work in that market. So the process of translating with a human is actually called transcreation. Trans means across. So you're, you're, you're cross-creating content from English into content that's appropriate for that culture. So you said it, you're not just changing the words, you're changing the references, you're changing the idioms, you're getting rid of the slang, you're getting rid of all that stuff that makes your content American, in mm -hmm. our case, right, and turning it into content that's appropriate for that culture. So here's a perfect example is that in American English, 
we have 35 baseball metaphors, 35. And they're like, you know them. They're like, touch base, hit a home run. Well, in cultures, you know, I know them because I've worked with sales and marketing people my whole career. And that's that's all people use. And there's some golf ones, too. But yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, you're right. Baseball and golf metaphors. Like, it doesn't even matter if you don't play golf. There are just these metaphors are in our language, but they don't work in Japan. They don't work in um, Korea. Actually, they may work in those countries because they like baseball, but there's plenty of countries where baseball just Mm -hmm. doesn't compute. So you've got to change those references. You've got to change the images. You've got to change the emojis. This emoji, I'm like doing a little circle with my thumb, is about sex in China, apparently. So so be careful with that one. Stop doing that one. But if uh you're starting to think globally, it's just not. Mm -hmm. So I love that. You said think globally. Before I get that, though, I need to talk about my other favorite example of bad translation and, and this just happened mm-hmm. over the the summer with the barbie movie poster mm-hmm. i forget what it was exactly but it was so it's like she's she's barbie he's just ken or like she can do it all and she's just he's just ken whatever it is but like the french poster said something it's like she can do it all he's fucking or something like that like it, it, that's what it was in french I, I i don't speak french but it was something like that so that that was just another funny one yeah, it happens all the time. I'll give another funny example. Um, yeah, and that's an example of a brand just not bothering. Not bothering mm-hmm. to dig into the culture or consider, yeah. So in the U.S., do you remember the Got Milk campaign? You're, yes. You, you do. Okay, so you're not, yes. you, yeah. So got- I, had, I had a professor who actually worked on it. Oh, um, really? And he was like, yeah, and he was like, the guy just wanted to, like, the client just wanted to meet a ton of celebrities. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's that's what he said. But oh, yeah, go funny. on. Okay. Yeah, it worked. But they tried to launch Got Milk into Latin America. And some idiot, some agency in San Francisco, who probably they're out of business, but some agency in San Francisco translated Got Milk to, are you lactating? <laughs> So there's that, right? So they launched this in Latin America, this Are You Lactating campaign. Of course, it offends everybody. And, you know, people who don't just chuckle at it are offending and they didn't sell more milk. I mean, total flop. So this is a perfect example of why you need to start with an awareness of the differences in culture and and like the perils of word for word translation. Yeah. So this is this is a good segue into the question of what what where should a company start when they're being global like what is mm-hmm. a company that is truly global from the start before we get into content marketing mm-hmm. before we get into the strategy mm-hmm. how do you be a truly global company yeah good question so i'm going to assert that if you're doing business online you're already global you already are so if you haven't already thought about that then you're a little bit behind no time like the present. And you need to take yourself to school or find a resource who can teach you how to approach your product development and your marketing with a global perspective. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna drop a book reference um, for you in a minute. So designing your product is even how it has to be done through a global lens. You know, there's there's mechanics, there's technology stuff. Like, are the dates rendering in the right way? Are you using the right currency? And then there's the cultural stuff. Like, how are you talking about the brand? Because the buyers in each market are going to like your brand for different reasons. So at the start, you need to involve people who actually understand about that. The book is called Taking Your... Let me... You know what? I have it on my shelf. 
It's by a woman named Natalie Kelly, and we can put it in the show notes or something. Natalie Kelly, and it's called Taking Your Product Global. And it's available on Amazon, and it's like the handbook right now for taking your product and content global. And Interesting. Global. Yeah. So that's, yeah, Take Your Company Global by take, Natalie Kelly. I was Interesting. wrong. Take Your Company Global. Take Your, Ooh, company, take your global. company. The New Rules of International Expansion. And she's a leader. She was a leader at HubSpot for a long time in localization. She was the VP of local. Localization is the term for this whole thing, translation and product engineering for a new market. So that's the book. And it's it's digestible. It's pretty easy to read. It's like, it's it's the go-to. So with with B2C, and Mm -hmm. I think so B2C, it tends to be a bit more obvious yeah. with 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 b2b i think a, there's a lot of struggles with one it's like like yes maybe they can sell globally to, to your point before but it's like mm-hmm. they don't have a cs team who speaks that language or they don't have a, a sales team who can can do any of the stuff to them so mm-hmm. i think before even even there that's where b2b needs to start but where how do, how, how does b2b go from hey mm-hmm. like we're a SaaS company who we're taking anybody right now. Um, mm-hmm. One that shouldn't be the case, but like we're taking anybody from anywhere. Most of it's the U.S. Mm-hmm. They don't know why, and it's because they haven't done global. Where, how do you how do you help them? Where do they go from? Okay, we're now going to do global and B two B. Right. I would start by helping them look at their data. Who is coming to their website? Who's buying their product? Where are the comments coming from on social? I'd look at their data and see where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. I would help them pick a market, a country. A market equals a country usually. And then start by assessing if their product needs to be tweaked for that market, which isn't really what I do, but I can, we can get the right help. And then figuring out how to release some content in that market to grow that market. And then, of course, you're measuring the growth, right? The growth rate before we translated the blog, the growth rate after we translated the website. Mm-hmm, yeah. And mm-hmm. te- I'm big on testing. Like it doesn't make sense to just translate everything, test your homepage, you know, design it for that market, make the little drop down that says, this is your English page. This is your Spanish page. Right. Should, should businesses do the different, um, like dot coms mm-hmm. for, for countries? Should they have different versions or That's a good question? Uh, generally, I think that the wisdom is yes, different domains for their, each of their countries. I will also tell you that this is something that people overlook is that SEO mm-hmm. is totally different. You cannot just translate your keyword. You can't translate yes. red sweater. You have to figure out what people are searching for in that market and translate it or use it as specific to them. Like like in the UK, you'd say red jumper for red sweater. Right. Trousers. And, trousers versus pants. That's right. Which I kind of think we should use trousers. I like it better. Because <laughs> trousers, so like pants means like underwear in in like yeah. the UK, right? I guess so. That's you know I what mean. they call cigarettes too no. in the UK. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, so that that's B two C again. But with B two B, it's so important because like we use terms like democratizing and leveraging and fintech and sales excel and like all this stuff. Um, and yeah, might match, but mm-hmm. to your point with SEO. The, the keyword intent, the search intent is all that matters in mm. in SEO. Right. So it's not just taking the blog, changing it. It's, it's no, no, this, what's the intent behind the person searching for it? Mm-hmm. And how are they going to find your content through that intent? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to it. And people get overwhelmed when I start talking about it. They, I get a lot of like, oh my God. But I mean, there are, there are easy ways to get started. There are easy ways to test. They're not grossly expensive. You know, it's not, it's not grossly expensive to translate your homepage or your lead magnet or your email sequencer or what, or what have you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. A lot of people, and maybe people listening to this too, will be like, well, that sounds like so much work to, mm -hmm. to work. I mean, one, that's what marketing is. It's customization. But a lot of people are like, hey, that sounds like a lot of work. We don't have the budget. Mm -hmm. What are some of the very basics we can or we should do? Right. Um, and, and I kind of don't get it. It's like, do you want to grow or not? Because if you want to grow, growth is probably outside of the U.S. Large growth is outside of the U.S. So why wouldn't you start experimenting with a little right. bit of translation, with a little bit of global content? Mm -hmm. uh, that's another thing I want to mention is that a lot of people say, well, can I just create my content in a way that like everybody likes it? And I say, if you're doing that, you're making it so generic, so watered down that it appeals to nobody. So sure, you can write super boring, bland technical content and it'll translate great and everybody can understand it, but you're going to bore everyone to tears. So where's that? Where, where's Because as a marketer, I, I get it too, but like, where's that sweet spot between standardization mm -hmm. of content mm -hmm. and then actually localizing it? Right. That's the right way to say it. It's exactly the right way to say it. So you can choose to standardize and translate it's one way to go, but it's not customized. It's not personalized. Or you can like uber personalize your content for different regions or different markets. More expensive, but higher higher returns, right? I There is some content you can standardize. Like you don't need to worry too much about FAQs, right? You don't need to worry too much about your service manual. An FAQ is marketing content, not service manual so much. But a homepage, there's no way you should try to standardize a homepage or a landing page or an ebook. Mm -hmm. You need to go as, as as per and then this concept is a general marketing concept. It's a trend. It's been a trend. Personalization, super customization. It's no different here. You're just customizing it for a different audience in a different country outside of your own country. I imagine cultural understanding and actually mm -hmm. understanding the culture is is what drives that content but mm -hmm. how do you mm -hmm. how does what what role does that play in the actual content creation yeah. in, in resonating with the different audiences and how do you incorporate that into mm -hmm. perhaps the larger strategy it's huge i think the first thing that you have to do is create a culturally intelligent culture within your organization and that means some training. It means like book clubs. There's a couple more books. I love books. I have, you can see my bookshelves. That's my wish list of travel books. And the other shelf is business books. Anyway, so you start with an organization that is culturally aware. What is it? What, is, what, are, we, what are we mean by culture? Why do we care about culture? Um, what does it mean to be culturally intelligent? That's the first thing. And then the people who are involved on your team, on any team that's helping to take your content global, you need cultural experts. You just do. Um, you need people who understand that culture, the Mexican culture intimately, the you know Japanese culture intimately. And those people are not just, um, th those are areas of expertise. Those are specializations. Yeah. So they're not just bilinguals. Plenty of people are bilingual. They're bicultural. So if you're involving people to adapt your product or your content, you want bicultural people. They understand our culture, our wacky, right, 
American culture and mm-hmm. then they understand the Japanese or the Mexican culture so they can make maps so they can make maps between the two. How do you identify somebody who's bilingual or multilingual versus somebody who is actually culturally aware of both and an expert in both? Yeah. I imagine that that's hard for a lot of people. Like, hey, we'll hire this person. They translate it. Wait, this person's not a subject matter expert in in what we're looking for here. How do you find that or identify it? A lot of people on LinkedIn, you know, um, other than like relying on a localization agency to find those people for you, I think those people are around. There's a couple African experts in my network, Spanish experts in my network. They're around and they usually advertise themselves as cultural experts or trans creation experts. They don't really call themselves translators. Mm-hmm. Um, although a translator can very capably do these jobs that I'm talking about. To recap, I would say making your organization culturally aware is a super important first step. And this is fun. This is cool stuff. Like it's super interesting. And mm-hmm. it, it's going to make you want to travel and like make friends with people who aren't American, who aren't from here. And, you know, that's what that's what it's about. It's fascinating how cultures are actually different. And then surrounding yourself with experts who can actually do the work. Yeah. yeah. So. So how many languages do you speak? <laughs> Spanish and English. So yeah, nice. okay. that's little Portuguese. I did some Portuguese in grad school. So do you exclusively work with Spanish and Spanish-speaking countries, or do you tap into other countries with and work with other experts? Yeah, exactly. I would work with other experts. So most of my expertise is in the Spanish-speaking, I don't even, I'm not even going to say Spanish-speaking world, because there's 26 countries that speak Spanish, but my mm-hmm. expertise is in the Spanish-speaking regions, and then I would involve experts from any other languages once we, once we get there. But I can help a company build a content strategy for multiple markets and then the execution has got to be done by experts so i think again it speaks to mm-hmm. your understanding and ability to identify the translator versus the cultural content person yeah or, or the in-country copywriter that's another way to go is to actually get your content written by somebody who is a copywriter in that country who's a marketer mm-hmm. in that country yeah well, it's time for Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right. This is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and things are going to get juicy. So so right on what we were just talking about, we were talking about some funny you know, translation errors, some copywriting things. I want to hear one of the most cringeworthiest or just funniest global content fails. I have a little file here with the worst of them. <laughs> okay. And you said we are not rated G. So I gave you got milk. Okay, here's another one. There was an airlines called Braniff. I've never heard of them before, but they had leather seats in their planes and they thought leather was super cool. So they promoted in in English as fly in leather. Okay. But in Spanish, that was translated as fly naked. So a whole different Um, type of airline there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's a bad one. Do you have any B2B ones that come to mind? B2B. Oh, no. All my examples here are B2C um, because the B2C ones are so gloriously bad like kfc tried to go to china their first attempt to go to china with finger looking good we all know i mean what is that anyway finger looking good gross but they tried to take that to china and they translated as eat your fingers off (laughs) (laughs) so bad what's a good behind the scenes moment or story where you were adapting content for a specific culture in 
the American culture, we are all about convenience and efficiency. In the Latin American culture, they're all about family and relationships. So if you talk to a Latin American audience about efficiency and process and, you know, you know how we are in America, they tune out. So it's important to change your messaging to appeal to their core values, which are different. And their core values are around relationships and family. So if you're talking to a Latin American audience about getting something done faster, more efficiently, all the things, you know, that's probably not going to land well with them. But if you talk to them about recapturing their time so they can spend more time with family, then they're listening. Meaning we actually, you actually talk about family in B2B settings and stuff like that? You would talk about reclaiming your time. You would talk about not spending so much time at work. You would Mm -hmm. talk about, so you're starting to get the difference. Instead of like being able to hit it harder and get more done, this piece of software in the US, that's cool. But in Latin America, that piece of software helps you reclaim your time, spend less time at work. Mm-hmm. That's so And I love that example because, I mean, the B2C ones are funny, but this mm-hmm. one is, is subtle, it's it, subtle, but it's not. It's subtle and it's not at the same time. And that's why I think that's such a great example. Exactly. It is. It is. But then only until you learn about that culture, do you really get it? You're like, oh, they care about this. So different from what we care about. And so much mm-hmm. of marketing is embedded in culture. You'll start noticing it after this conversation. You'll be like, oh, yeah, oh my God, yeah. that's so American. That's so like gro- grossly American. Well, so this, is, this yeah. is a good next question for you. What is your, your tip? The first thing you think of, or maybe not, but what's your, what is your tip for Americans mm-hmm. specifically working with international mm-hmm. and different cultures? Right. Beware of your sports metaphors. You should do that with me too. I probably won't understand them. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, and now you're going to hear sports metaphors absolutely everywhere. Beware of your sports metaphors. Beware of all the idioms that we use in our content, the way that we explain things. It's completely idiomatic. And our cultural values. I think that being a marketer in 2024 is going to be about understanding your company's corporate values, your culture's values, and how all that aligns with and global values. If there are yeah. mismatches. So yeah, I, yeah. I'm going to say culture is going to be huge in 2024. Corporate culture, it, American mm-hmm. culture, global culture. Yeah. The idioms are, are a big thing too. Mm-hmm. So like even like, so one of my team members, English wasn't their first language. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, we were often on calls and uh, my CMO would always be saying all these things and I would just be slacking him. Like, this is what he means by this. Yeah. Um, or, or he would just be using ChatGPT to be like, what is, what does this actually mean? So yeah, using language that more people understand, I think is pretty big. Yeah. And, and being, being careful with your language, being precise with your language. And as marketers, this is like, this is what we do all day long, but being precise and careful with your language also means inclusivity, mm-hmm. right? And cultural sensitivity. And I think that's new for a lot of us. And it's not ubiquitous anymore that content teams be intentional with global language and inclusive language. We're not there yet as marketers. Maybe half of us are there. Half of us are talking about it. And I talk about it a lot. Is your, is your, were, are your words inclusive? Have you yeah. written with a global mindset? Yeah. 
I think an easy place to look too is you see it in job postings, mm-hmm. and your your point about the smart sports metaphors. So one, they're 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 everywhere in sales and marketing. They're all over job postings. So again, most people I think English speakers do know a lot of them, but there's mm-hmm. tons where I look at them like I don't know what this this means or like where did this come from. Yeah. But sports too, and to, to kind of stereotype, sports tend to be leaning more masculine. So using those words in your job description can have that implicit, like we're looking for a male salesperson or something like that. Two oh, quarterback, and I'll let you. Quarterback, two, uh, we need yeah a quarterback. quarterback on our sales team. That is a that is a white guy or maybe a black guy, mm-hmm. but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and then too, it's like the the cultural speaker might or someone whose English isn't their first language might not get that mm-hmm. either, even though they're perfectly well at that job. Right. Um, we all have global colleagues anymore and we all have global peers. LinkedIn is super global. Mm-hmm. So being, being ignorant about that, like not understanding that that colleague was struggling is just, it's really not cool. I'm sorry, but it's not cool. Mm-hmm. Like, get the meetings recorded. Get them translated for that person. Slow down your speech. Be mindful of the words. That That's a big one for me because uh, yeah. I talk so fast. I, I literally will say to people, like, do I need to say that again or was I talking too fast? Do I need to slow down? I know I do too. Like, I'm thinking about the next sentence and I, I'm aware of that also. <laughs> so, again, being intentional with the words you use and always remembering who's in the room. Who are you speaking with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be tedious. It can be fun. It is fun to learn about other cultures and other people and other ways of life. This does not have to be tedious. Yeah. Yeah. Fun, fun exercise. So next mm-hmm. job postings you say, like I have a theory that if, if they're looking for a man, they say quarterback and have tons of sports references. If, <laughs> if they think it's more female leading, you'll see the word nurture a lot more. I think you're right. Emotional intelligence, nurture. I, I, yes, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I know email nurturing is a thing and like that that's obviously a term I'm not talking about, but it's like nurturing relationships or it, 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 it's stuff like that. Like, nurturing relationships. No, I think you're yeah. right. But I bet that the HR person didn't wasn't aware of that when they wrote the job description. Right. It shows their bias. There's like inherent bias baked in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I'm going to laugh so- about the quarterbacking <laughs> when I see that in job posting. Oh, they, they want a guy. They want a dude. You want to talk to a girl, dude, who's really big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you, you too, like, look, a lot of, I think we've gotten better, but, like, a lot of the, the big C-level or just mm-hmm. corporate honcho events happen on, like, golf courses yeah. and, and stuff yeah. like that still to this day. And that can be excluding to people. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because not everybody, I golf, I'm terrible, but not everybody golfs. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a good question um, for for you. So there's content writer mm-hmm. and content strategist. Right. And those are different roles. Some people don't realize that. But those are different roles. What advice do you have for, for somebody who is a content writer now and is aiming to be a content strategist? Great question. Um, content writers make great content strategists. They need to make sure they understand all the different components of content strategy, digital, social, um, buyer personas, mission, vision, differentiation. So they need to understand all the things that feed into their work, that are foundational to their work. 
that they might not have their arms around if they're just writing blog posts. So take yourself to school, learn SEO, learn social, learn strategy. Like Andy Crestadina's book is an awesome start for somebody who wants to level up their game. It's called Content Chemistry. Really good book. As a course too, but the book is $25 and the course is 2000. So get the book, right? <laughs> right in it. Yeah. But learn all the components of that. Yeah. Surround yourself by people who do those kinds of things and learn from them. There's a lot of good content marketing communities around. There's, I think of Exit 5 and I think of Superpath, right? Are you mm-hmm, members mm-hmm. of either of those? Start. I, I'm not a member. Yeah. I've, I've, I've seen them. I, I'm not a member in any of them. Yeah. Not a joiner. You're aware, right? Yeah. So yeah. join a community like that so you can start learning from people if you want to level up your, your content game. Yeah, I'd also, uh, and yeah. you probably have a take on this, I'd say, Spend more time being a part of content calendars and cadences rather than if you if you don't have that opportunity, ask for it. But but definitely like focus more on the content calendar and and the larger picture is always helpful. Like raise your hand, raise your hand, try to join in on strategy meetings, try to. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Learn if go ahead. I was going to say learn about repurposing. Um, and you, yeah, learn how to repurpose because that not only is an approach to how you write that blog post or that ebook, but it's also a strategy for the business that's going to save the business money. And if you can go to your manager and say, I got a repurposing plan, this is what I mean by that. You're going to add value and elevate your, elevate your value in the organization. Repurposing I, is a big yeah. part of content strategy. I'm a big believer in repurposing mm-hmm. one most content should be made to be repurposable in B2B with the exception of this is a a really personalized thing or like we're newsjacking and we're just trying to say something really trendy. But but everything you should do should be able to not just be a blog post, but be in your email or a social post or video. Uh, Yeah. You can go from small to big. So you can try a LinkedIn post and that's small. And then if it resonates, you create your blog post or you build it out into an ebook. Or you can go big to small. So your ebook is like is like a turkey and then you carve pieces off of it forever, right? Yeah. It becomes three blog posts. It becomes a newsletter. And if you start your content creation thinking about that, it'll it'll soon become pretty automatic. Like, oh, if I structure the blog post this way, I've got six LinkedIn posts out of it. Or or if I write this cluster of blog posts that are related, it becomes an ebook. So yeah. it becomes really natural once you start thinking about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it becomes even easier if you think about it from the beginning oh, rather than after we have written all this content. What do we do with it? Yeah, think about <laughs> it from the beginning. Yeah, like bake it into your creative brief, right? There you go. I'm going to update my creative brief. There's a new line item that says, how will this be repurposed? Ooh, nice. Yeah, yeah, my creative brief evolves all the time. Well, Lee, I could go all day with you with double the Lee power here. But we are wrapping up, and I always like to give my guests an opportunity to uh, call out anything they want to highlight. I know you have a, a newsletter series. I know people can contact you and follow you. Where can people follow you and stuff yeah. like that? I'm on LinkedIn, so look for me on LinkedIn and send me a DM or go ahead and um, connection request. I'll accept it. And I do publish a newsletter, which you can find in my featured section. So that's the best, that's the best place to find me. I, I post almost every day. What can people expect in the newsletter? Right. So this this past month, I've been talking about global content strategy. So a four-part series on 
what we've been talking about. I'm really tactical. I think there's plenty of content marketing theory out there. So my stuff is a lot more tactical. It's templates. It's how to. It's you know solving this problem or that problem, like solving the problem of painful review cycles. I've got mm. a newsletter on that. So I get tactical. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I I recently saw a post about your newsletter, and you know I'm a marketer. I'm an ads guy. I am all about social proof, having the screenshots of of people praising your stuff. And I saw so many great comments on there. So if you work in content marketing, especially if you don't know much about global or already know a lot about global, but always need ideas, you should definitely be following that newsletter and subscribing there. Thank you. Yeah. Willie, thank you so much for being on. I had such a great conversation and thank you all for listening. I will see everybody for another episode of Lead to Be next time. Enjoying Lead to Be? Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews go a long way in supporting me. Thank you so much.